following is a presentation of the Church of the Living God in Traverse City, Michigan. This could be the last week in Hebrews, which I'm not, I'm, I'm a little unsettled by that because I've gotten used to life in Hebrews. So very quickly, don't forget the theme of Hebrews. The theme is that Jesus is better. So to this Jewish audience, largely Jewish audience that the writer of Hebrews was writing to, uh, they had grown up in a culture and in a community where they had kind of these heroes of their past and people that they really admired. And what the writer in Hebrews is doing methodically throughout the book of Hebrews is saying, okay, those were great people or these were great things or great moments, but do you understand Jesus is better than all of those? If those were amazing, think about how amazing Jesus is. So he talks about uh, this in the closing as well, which makes sense as a close for the book of Hebrews. It's maybe three verses away from the end, but it's pretty close. You're going to hear in this section today, there's a better altar, there's a better high priest, there's a better sacrifice, there's a better city than the city in which you're living. All of this kind of going with the theme of Hebrews. So let me just read the verses. I'm going to make a few comments because there's some very Jewish things that are part of this that can be a little hard to understand in our 21st century perspective. So I'm in Hebrews 13, beginning in verse 8. Jesus, the anointed one, is always the same, yesterday, today, and forever. Do not be carried away by diverse and strange ways of believing or worshiping. It's good for the heart to be strengthened by grace, not by regulations about what you can eat, which do no good even for those who observe them. So that's a reference to the dietary laws. So for the Jewish people, making sure that they made a distinction between clean and unclean things to eat was very, very important and was seen as part of their ability to be righteous. The writer of Hebrews says, listen, that's not what's going to strengthen you as you walk with God. It's going to be a spiritual strengthening. Verse 10, we approach an altar from which those who stand before the altar in the tent have no right to eat. This is simply going back to the ritual in the Old Testament. People would bring a sacrifice to the temple for their sins. The priests could not touch it. In the past, the bodies of those animals whose blood was carried into the sanctuary by the high priest to take away sin, they were all burned outside the camp. And in the same way, Jesus suffered and bled outside the city walls of Jerusalem to sanctify the people. So there's a picture up on the screen of where Golgotha is, the hill on which Jesus was crucified. It's outside the city. The writer of Hebrews is just making connections for his audience. Like, you know the sacrifice that covered your sin, it was taken outside the city. And he's kind of telling them, make the connection. Jesus, the better sacrifice, was taken outside the city. These things are accomplished to help them see who Jesus is. Verse 13. Let's then go to him, that is Jesus, outside the camp and resolve to bear the insult and abuse that he endured. So now we have to pause there. Have you heard any mention of a camp before this? This is the first time. Like suddenly out of nowhere, let's go outside the camp. So this is what some other Christians have called hyperlinks. If you're familiar, like if you're reading a document online, something's in blue or underlined and you click on it and it takes you somewhere else, this would be the equivalent for the Jewish audience here. Outside the camp, if you Google that term, it'll take you to about 25 verses in the Old Testament that talk about things that happen outside the camp. There's two key things that happened. Number one, 
unclean things were taken out of the camp, taken outside the walls, so that you would get unclean things out of where everybody lived. But there's an unusual exception to this. There's one time when Moses goes outside the camp, and he sets up a tent, and he says to the people, listen, I'm going outside the camp to pursue God. Basically, the camp that we're in is so unclean, I'm going to have to go out there to find a clean spot. So you see two things happening with the history of this phrase. One is, it tends to be the place where you sent things that nobody wanted, but then also there were times when the camp itself was so unclean, you had to go out there to actually pursue the presence of God. So you see here the writer says, let's go with Jesus outside the camp. So Jesus is going to be rejected and following Jesus is going to be seen as going into territory that's not great territory to be in. It's why you'll bear insults and abuse like Jesus endured. And yet, he's also referencing what Moses did. He had to go there to follow God. For as long as we're here, that is, in this camp, we don't live in a permanent city, but we're looking for the city that is to come Someday there will be a city that will endure, perhaps your translation says endure or is permanent. Through Jesus then, let us keep offering to God our own sacrifice, the praise of lips that confess his name without ceasing. Let's not neglect what is good and let's share what we have for these sacrifices also please God. So I started thinking this week about how we kind of translate this into a message that makes more sense for us today because once again, the Jewish audience is making all kinds of connections about what's going on there. We didn't grow up there. This is a 2,000-year-old perspective, and so we're trying to figure out how to apply it today. So I started making a list of what it looks like for us to live inside the camp, that is, a place in our life or in the world where things are not good, they're sinful, they're evil, they're wrong, what it looks like to move outside the camp. So I was coming up with this list of all these things we've been talking about. And then I thought, I think the list has been made for us. Jesus, in the Sermon on the Mount, gave what we call the Beatitudes, the series of blesseds. And in some ways, it's simply describing what life is like in the kingdom of God. That is, if, if you're going to give your life to Jesus and you're going to follow him, he's welcoming you into a life, what we call a kingdom, where we live now with this new king, who has ordered and designed life for our good and for God's glory. So this is the list from the Beatitudes that Jesus gave. And that's where we're going to go the rest of the morning. We're going to kind of jump out of Hebrews. This is our own hyperlink. And go back to the words of Jesus himself. So this is found, the version I'm reading is in Matthew 5, beginning in verse 3. Blessed are the spiritually poor, because the kingdom of heaven is theirs. Blessed are those who mourn, or probably better translate, repent. They will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, because they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, they will be shown God's mercy. Blessed are those who are pure in heart, they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, they'll be called children of God. And then blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, because the kingdom of heaven is theirs. So first we've got to talk about blessed. 
in this case, uh, Matthew, who recorded the sayings of Jesus, he could have chosen two Greek words to describe blessedness. He chose a particular one, and the word is makarios, and I hope I'm pronouncing it correctly. It was a common word. It was used by the Greeks to describe what some would call life with the gods. So if you really want to know what the good life is like to the Greeks, you would participate in something about uh, life in the realm where the gods lived. So if you were a Makarios person, somehow you were participating in this state of happiness and this kind of flourishing. So Matthew uses this word, and here's how Strong's Concordance describes the biblical use. Makarios, or blessed, describes a believer in an enviable or fortunate position because they've received God's provision or God's favor, which literally has extended his grace or his benefits to them. So it's simply saying, followers of Jesus are in a position where the grace of God is extended to them, and now because they are followers of Jesus, they're in an enviable position, which seems kind of odd as you look at this list. You're spiritually poor, you're mourning, you're hungry and thirsty, you're being persecuted. How can it be that that's an enviable position to be in? So what Jesus is doing here is challenging what the good life looked like to not just the Greeks and Romans, but I think to people in the Jewish culture as well. What does it look like to have a blessed life? Like if, if you're really, really flourishing as a human being, we get all the messages from our culture about what that looks like, what's important, what gives our life meaning and purpose and hope and what makes us amazing. And Jesus says, all right, well, we've got to back up a little bit. Let's talk about this. What does it look like? to participate with God in life. One commentary notes that in the wisdom tradition of Christian literature, which would be in the Old Testament, Makarisms declare the blessing of those in fortunate circumstances. And they declare a present reward and happiness. There's something about being where you are that has its own reward. And then in the prophets, these Makarisms declare the present and future blessedness of those who are in dire circumstances because one day they'll be vindicated. In other words, one day they'll see the goodness of what they were doing. So you're, you're going to see here in the Beatitudes, this is the idea of blessed. There was something about being this kind of person that brings a blessing now and also offers hope that in the future we will be able to see the goodness of the thing that we've chosen. So let's walk through them here together. Makarios are the poor in spirit. So this is literally simply people who understand that they're sinful, that they're broken, that there's something really wrong in the world and that I contribute to it, that my heart is dark, that my actions are sometimes wrong, that my loves and my desires, they're, they're deeply distorted. And the poor in spirit are those who make the correct diagnosis about themselves. And that is that we are spiritually sick, that this sickness is going to lead us to death. If you've ever been part of a recovery group, the first step is along these lines. We admit that we are powerless and that our lives have become unmanageable. There's kind of a spiritual equivalent to this. We admit that we are sinful and broken and there's nothing we can do to save ourselves. We need a savior, and this makes us blessed 
because we've recognized the problem. We've made a proper diagnosis. And now that's the first step toward finding the cure. So the opposite of this would be uh, pride. And this would be where you would be cursed. If you're blessed here, we're going to call it cursed on the other side. So the proud are miserable. And that's simply those who are convinced they have it all together. There's nothing wrong with me. There might be problems in the world, but I'm not part of the problems. I don't need help. Um, The anthem is, I think, I did it my way. They would say, if they were in a group together, they'd say, I confess that I'm powerful and that I can do this my way. So here's what I've discovered. As a coach, the hardest players to coach are those who are convinced they're awesome. The best players to coach are the ones who are like, coach, I need help. Okay, now you're ready. Now I can help move you into being good at your sport because you recognize you've got a lot to learn. The hardest people to counsel are those who think they're not contributing to the problem. The hardest musician to work into a band is the one who's convinced everything they bring is awesome. We experience this in life all the time, that when we're in contact with people who don't get that there's something flawed about them, it's very hard to make any kind of good progress. Because in many ways, the first step of being an adult is to simply say, uh, I'm not perfect, I have problems, and then for Christians to say, I have sinful brokenness in my life that I can't heal, that I need Jesus to heal. And, and so we see the first beatitude telling us that when we're, we have that kind of spirit, we see our own spiritual poverty, we're blessed, which seems kind of counterintuitive. But no, no, the first thing you have to do is make the proper diagnosis because now we can figure out how to find the cure. The second beatitude says makarios are the mourners. And this isn't simply a word talking about people who are sad. This literally means people who have become aware of their sinfulness and now their heart is broken. So this isn't about sadness just in the course of life as difficult things happen to us. This says, no, I I see myself for who I am. I'm a sinner in need of saving. In fact, I'm contributing to the brokenness of the world and our heart breaks for ourselves and for the people around us who are hurt by our sin. These are the mourners and these are blessed because they will find comfort. And what is this comfort? Salvation. God himself will move in to comfort you. So you you see the problem, and it breaks your heart. Like, oh, I need help. Okay, this is good news. You are blessed when you're in that position because God moves in, and God offers you the comfort of taking you and beginning to heal you and to make things new. So the contrast, then, is the hardened Once again, if you don't think you have a problem, you're not going to recognize the cure when you see it. And we see this physically all the time, but spiritually, it's ignoring the fact that there's something in us that needs saving. And if we don't see that, we won't recognize the Savior 
who shows up for us. In fact, in the, in the worst case scenario, we won't just not see anything that's wrong. We might actually think that the thing inside of us that's broken and bad is something that's good and there's reason to be celebrated. We'll get very confused if we don't see the right diagnosis. So a couple weeks ago, I got an MRI on my knee because I'm old. And uh, I, the, the first result that came back from the MRI was that, oh, it looks like you tore some stuff. You need to go talk to this doctor. You might be looking at surgery. So I went to my doctor this last week. And my doctor gave me the proper diagnosis. You don't need surgery. You just need a big bulky brace to try to wear all the time. Okay, but that's good news. I didn't need surgery. I had the proper diagnosis, and the doctor actually had the proper cure to give me. I could have pretended nothing was wrong with my knee, and then it just gets worse and worse and worse. Um, I could have got a misdiagnosis, and then the treatment's not actually going to help me because it wasn't the problem. It's identifying the problem, finding the cure. This is the first two Beatitudes. Blessed are the poor in spirit. You know you're the problem. Blessed are those who are mourn. You are ready to get help. Which brings us to the third one. Oh, I want to add one other thing about that. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. The word here, um, and some of you who have been Christians for a long time might recognize this, parakleo. Does that ring any bells? So that word basically says, the, the main meaning is that you'll give evidence that will stand up in court in your defense. So those who mourn their spiritual brokenness, they turn to Jesus. When they are in court, at the end of their life in front of God, they have evidence that will stand up in court. Jesus is my Savior. But then this is also the word from which we get the Holy Spirit. And Jesus says, I will send you another comforter. Blessed are those who mourn. They will be comforted. The third beatitude, Makarios. The word is meek, and this, this is such a bad word to use to translate this. You're not, you might not like this one any better. It's really blessed are the harnessed. Makario are the harnessed. So here's the image. The Greeks used this word if they would domesticate, say, a wild bull, or they would harness a horse to plow. There were these animals of tremendous strength, but unharnessed, they were wreaking havoc. So you put something on them that took their strength. You didn't rob them of strength. You took their strength and you controlled them. Job, you see an image of a war horse pawing the ground that's just waiting to go into battle. And you've got a rider who's reining that horse in. Now when it's time for that horse to go, it's going to be impressive and you're going to want to get out of the way. But that horse is harnessed. It has a bit in its mouth. Its tremendous strength is being channeled. This is what Jesus says in the third beatitude. Markarios are the harnessed. It's those of us who are in the service of the kingdom, and the strength that we have is given over to God to harness us. So hear me clearly on this. You are strong. You are strong. There are opportunities in your life with your gifts, your talent, your presence, your words. You have incredible strength to bring good things to the world or bad things to the world. And I don't care what your lot is in life. This is in your family. This is in your church. This is with your kids, with your parents, with your siblings, at a job, um, 
piloting a tank, I don't know, you name it, you have power at your fingertips. And the third beatitude says, listen, if you want to participate in life with God, be willing to have that power harnessed. Let someone wise direct it so that as your power goes out into the world, it doesn't create havoc, but it brings good things. So the contrast then would be, um, cursed are those who want to remain wild. They love their strength, but they don't want anybody to tell them how to use it. And that typically wreaks havoc in the world and creates destruction. So the meek or the harnessed are blessed, and I think this is why. They'll inherit the earth. I think the idea is this, that if we are willing to be harnessed in the service of Jesus, we become the kind of steward that God intends us to be. Back to Genesis language, right? The world is created, God puts humanity on it and says, I want you to steward the world for me. I want you to take care of it. This is my creation. Go in and help it flourish. And I think the idea of this verse is if we give ourselves to Jesus to harness our strength, we become these stewards God always intended us to be. And then one day, his proven stewards will be given the stewardship of the earth in its fullness. They will inherit the earth. So these are the first three Beatitudes. These are the foundations. There, I would see them as the three requirements for entering into life with God. Number one, an awareness of our brokenness. Number two, humility, which calls us to repentance, and then God offers salvation to us. And then finally, servanthood. So I just want to throw this out there. Um, for one, if you haven't entered the kingdom of God, I would plead with you to enter into the kingdom of God. But if you're in the kingdom of God and you're not experiencing it like you thought you should, it's not, um, it's not filling up your life with the goodness that God offers and you, and you don't understand why, I would encourage you to go back to these three things. My question would be, do you see yourself honestly? Do you see the sinfulness in your life? Are you broken by it? Do you mourn who you are or who you have become and recognize that as it's impacting people around you, you mourn for them too. That does it cause you to turn to Jesus rather than bring you despair where you want to hide or you want to just retreat and curl up into a ball? Does it drive you to Jesus and say, okay, I need help. You're the doctor who offers the cure for my sickness. And then at that point, we go, okay, now God, use who you have made me and what you have given me for your glory and for the purpose of your kingdom. Harness me. Because if you do that, then what I bring to the world is goodness everywhere I go. That's how my strength or God's strength is actually made perfect in me through that harnessing process. Jesus says, my yoke is easy, my burden is light. The idea is this yoke that you would put on oxen who were plowing. Uh, Jesus says, listen, let me harness you. You'll actually find it'll make your life easier and better and more productive. Y'all, this is a two-parter. I did it again. I'm only halfway through my notes. We've only laid the foundation with the first three Beatitudes. I don't want to rush through the rest because they're, they're so rich. 
so I think, I think we're going to wrap it up today. Um, I've got notes in the back if you didn't pick up notes. If you want to read ahead about what's happening next week, because I'm excited to talk about hungering and thirsting for righteousness. Uh, oh, man, just, uh, so many good things here. I'm not going to rush. I'm not going to rush. Lord, I am grateful that you step into the world where we are. That you step into whatever camp we are living in, whatever place where we are surrounded or influenced by things that are tearing us down and that are breaking us. And you step in and you say, come with me. Let's go to a new place. Let's leave this broken, frail impermanent place and come with me to this place of a solid foundation, a permanent and eternal city, and let's begin that life now. That is such a great offer to us. Lord, I pray that you give us uh, the strength we need to see ourselves honestly and to see our sinfulness, and not look away, but see it. And and then, Lord, I pray that it breaks our heart, um, not to drive us to despair, but simply as we see who we are. May our weeping lead us to you. May you be the shoulder that we cry on. As we reach out to you as our perfect heavenly father who says, come into my family. And we enter into this new life as your child in your kingdom. And and suddenly you begin to do this work in us where you help us to become who you made us to be. That you bring us healing, that you bring us redemption, that you take the broken things and you mend them. And we see the strength that you've intended for us to have arise, and then we give it to you in your service, and we say, okay, Lord, direct me. Use me in this world. Help me to bring your truth and your goodness and love and life to everyone and everything that I touch. Uh, That's a beautiful vision of life, Lord. Such a tremendous offer. So as we think about that this week, Lord, next week uh, we'll be thinking about what it looks like then to move outside of ourselves and change the world around us. But maybe this week, Lord, just let us settle into the fact that you love us, that you call us into your family and into your kingdom, that you will equip us to be what you've called us to be, that you will do this work of transformation in us that moves us from where we are into who you have called us and made us to be. Pray this in your name, Lord. Amen. This has been a presentation of the Church of the Living God. For more information, please visit us at clgonline.org.